In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. Luther responded, Unless I am convinced from the sacred scriptures that I am in error, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand with us as we proclaim these Reformation truths in the 21st century? You can take your stand by becoming a monthly or annual contributor to Issues Etc. Find out the benefits of becoming an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Click the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Help us proclaim the solas of the Reformation. Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ alone. Here we stand, Issues Etc. and you. The baptism of infants is the historic practice of the church, and that's good to know, but it is, in the end, insufficient. It is good to know that that is a historic practice of the church, but is it based in solid scriptural call, command, and promise? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to answer the question, why we should baptize babies, Dr. Jordan Cooper He's executive director of Justin Center, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including his latest, In Defense of the True, the Good, and the Beautiful, and creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Reasons Why Babies Should Be Baptized. Dr. Cooper, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. We're going to be making the biblical case here throughout our conversation, but there is also an historical case to be made for infant baptism. What is it? Yeah, sure. So this is a question that that a lot of people ask is, were infants baptized in the early church? And we can certainly talk about the biblical text in terms of what we see in the book of Acts. But yes, we do see some quite early evidences of infant baptism. We even see some implications of this with one of the first martyrs in the post-apostolic church, Polycarp, who, who talks about how he has served God for 86 years, and that was his age. In other words, he has viewed himself as basically being a Christian from the time of infancy. So obviously that's not a, a direct identification of baptism, but it does point in the direction of, of how it is that Christians did view their infants from the earliest times. So yeah, w- once we get into the, you know, especially third century and certainly into the fourth century, we have a number of different testimonies to infant baptism. It does seem that it is the case Hippolytus, for example, mentions this. And Hippolytus's grandfather was a Christian. So he's, you know, going back a number of generations and he testifies to infant baptism. Origen, who's writing the beginning of the third century, he also testifies to infant baptism and really does identify it as being an apostolic practice. In other words, it's a practice that we know had been going on a significant period of time prior to people like Hippolytus and, and Origen. So we do see really only one significant instance of someone arguing against infant baptism in the early church. And that comes from Tertullian, and that is, again, in the third century. However, Tertullian, even in that treatise that he has where he argues for a later baptism, his argument is not that infant baptism is wrong or invalid. However, he argues that there is a particular reason theologically, and we could talk about that, but it might be a little off the track of where we're going. 
But the point is that even in the earliest testimony we have that there are some people who are arguing against infant baptism, they're still acknowledging the validity of infant baptism. And it also gives us a testimony, people arguing against it, that it really was a pretty universal, at least, practice at that time period in the church. So the first reason, and I think it's really the reason that essentially runs the rest of them, why infants should be baptized, you say, is that baptism is the work of God. What's your point? This is kind of the key question that you have to ask when you're looking at different views of baptism is, who's doing the work in baptism? Whose action is it? And within a, say, modern, more Baptistic approach to baptism, it tends to be the case that baptism is viewed as a public profession of faith. So if you look at something like the Baptist Faith and Message, which is the very brief statement of the beliefs of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant church body in the United States, that's very clearly the perspective that's outlined there. So within that perspective, then, baptism is viewed in many ways as a work, but it's a work of a human profession. And if it is something that I am doing to profess or to demonstrate my faith, you can understand why then you would say that, well, why does an infant need that? Or can an infant even do that? Because, you know, infants can't really express themselves very well yet. You know, they don't know how to talk. So you've got to wait till you're at the right age and you can demonstrate to everybody that you've had a conversion experience. And now you can show that through this act of this public profession of faith that is baptism. Well, that's a, a very different approach to baptism than than the Lutheran approach would take it, and which I would say certainly is a scriptural approach, which is that if you, if you just read through the passages of scripture that talk about baptism, you do a read through the whole New Testament, and we can talk Old Testament too, but read through the whole New Testament and all the explicit passages about baptism. And if you just, I think, ask that pretty basic question as you're reading through those passages of who's doing the work in this passage? Is it man or is it God? Universally, it's it's God doing the work. It's something that's happening to you. The point here is to say that if baptism is God doing something for you, which I would say is God delivering his promises to you, God delivering his grace to you, God delivering his forgiveness to you, if that's the case, then you don't need to be of a certain age or a certain intellectual capacity, none of that is really relevant at all because that's that's not the point. The point is not what I am doing to show other people something about myself, but instead the point is that God loves his people and God wants to give his promises and his grace to all people. So in light of that, the question is why on earth would we exclude infants from that? The next reason, equally foundational, is that baptism is a gift. What do you mean? So baptism is, this is very tied to what we just talked about. It's the idea that baptism is a divine gift. It's something that God does. It is not something that I am doing. And the question really here is, if you're talking about the gifts of God, the question then is, well, who does God want to give his gifts to? Right? Who does God want to give his grace to? And if you're foundational assumption looking at baptism is that it's not a gift, that it's a human work, well, then you're certainly going to come to very different conclusions about this. And people tend in more Baptistic circles to really more place baptism, as we would categorize it, more in the category of law than gospel. 
so that it's a human command, right? It's a divine command in that it's from God, but it's a command that is given for the human person to obey, to submit to. So that, you know, we are called to be baptized as maybe the first good work that leads to other good works. And baptism instead, in its scriptural background, is never displayed as a good work of the human person at all. In fact, it's it's the opposite of human works because it is something that God is giving to us, something that is done to us and for us rather than something that I am doing to demonstrate something to God. And then we just have to ask that question biblically, who does God desire to give his gifts to? And as you look at various passages of scripture, such as the most famous example being the infants being brought to Jesus, it's quite clear that Jesus lays his hands on them and says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Do not hinder them from coming to me. So if Jesus pretty explicitly says that uh, we are not to hinder the little children and infants from coming to him, then how could we possibly delay baptism? You know, I mean, is, isn't that exactly what Jesus commands us not to do? Isn't it a hindrance to bringing the child to Jesus to say something to the child like, well, you're not the right place yet emotionally. You haven't been able to make the right decision or the right profession of faith. That gift nature of baptism seems to go hand in hand in Holy Scripture, especially in the book of Acts with the gift of the Holy Spirit where it's explicitly called the gift of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So you see that in Acts chapter 2, where St. Peter preaches that great sermon at Pentecost. And at the end of that sermon, we are told in the book of Acts that the listeners are cut to the heart. They are feeling the guilt of their sins because they have rejected the Messiah. And they look at each other and say, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, they understand that they're guilty. They've rejected the Messiah. What can they do about this now? You know, is Peter just going to leave them in their despair and say, too bad? No, but Peter gives them the answer to that, the remedy for the guilt of their sins. And in doing that, he tells them to repent and be baptized. And then he identifies two things as being given in baptism. So Peter says, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift, and there's that gift language, of the Holy Spirit. Baptism itself is a gift, but it's a gift because it delivers these other things. And what does it deliver? Well, as Peter identifies these two things, which are, it delivers the forgiveness of sins and it delivers God's Holy Spirit to us. The next reason is babies or sinners. How does that figure in? I think the, the question then is, this kind of reasons from the first two reasons, you know, it, it flows from the first two, which is we talk about baptism as being God's work, not man's work, and baptism being a gift and ultimately a gift that gives grace. And what is that grace, as we just talked about with St. Peter in, in his sermon at Pentecost? Well, that gift is the forgiveness of sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit. So if baptism gives the forgiveness of sins, then if we're talking about who needs baptism, what problem does it solve? Well, it solves the problem of your guilt. So therefore, we can simply ask the question, well, if you need forgiveness or if baptism delivers forgiveness, who actually is in need of forgiveness in the first place? And everyone who is a sinner is in need of forgiveness, right? So then the question is, well, who's a sinner? What groups does that include? It certainly doesn't you know, include only men or only women. We're all sinners. Then you get to the question of, of age. You know, is it that you know, you're not a sinner as an infant? 
Is it that you only sin when you, you know, reach the age of accountability or something like that? And, and scripture is quite explicit about this. We have the, the famous text in the, in the Psalms where David says, you know, in sin did my mother conceive me, in that even the very conception of humanity is partaking of corruption due to the nature of the fall, so that there is a sinfulness upon us, even from the very moment of our, our first creation at the moment of conception. And so if that's the case, then then infants certainly are sinners. Right? If you're a sinner in the womb, it's not like that suddenly goes away. So if baptism is the remedy for sin, and we acknowledge the very clear scriptural truth that infants are sinners, then of course we baptize infants because they need the forgiveness of sins. And who are we to deny them the means that God has chosen to deliver those gifts of forgiveness to them? Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest, Executive Director of Just End Sinner. We're talking about why we should baptize babies. Another reason which some people find difficult to think about, infants can believe. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today, is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. The Faith Once for All Delivered to the Saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness, Pick up your copy today at cph.org slash witness. Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C. Why4life.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to the question, why we should baptize babies. Dr. Jordan Cooper of Justin Sinner is our guest. Dr. Cooper, here is a reason that some find most problematic, and that's infants can believe. 
Yeah, and I find this regularly. People struggle with this. Oftentimes when you're talking about infant baptism, the response that you'll receive from a lot of people is, well, but in, in scripture, we see that baptism and faith are so tied together and an infant can't believe, therefore an infant shouldn't be baptized. So usually this question is really only brought up when it's when there is an assumption on the part of the one arguing against infant baptism and they're trying to say, well, hey, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that we would say an infant can believe because of course infants can't believe and if they can't believe, therefore they shouldn't be baptized. Now, I would say, first of all, the, the promise of baptism is, is dependent upon the command of God. It's not dependent upon the nature of the faith of the infant. However, it is important to recognize that Scripture has a few different testimonies to the reality of infant faith. And the most famous of these, and this is the one that I usually bring up because it's the one that people tend to know, and that is the example of John the Baptist. And we see with John the Baptist that he leaps in the womb when he hears the voice of Mary, the mother of his Lord. So if John the Baptist, as an infant, he's not even outside of the womb yet, can leap for joy because of his faith, then certainly infants can have faith. And I've heard some very strange responses to this. Someone told me that, well, Elizabeth just probably had gas, and that's what made John move. I said, really? You really think that's the point of the text? You think that the early Christians just spread this this story because they just really wanted you to know that Elizabeth had, had gas problems when she was uh, you know, going to be giving birth? It obviously makes no sense, and it's clearly not the intention of the passage. But beyond the, the instance of just John the Baptist, we have a couple different testimonies within the book of Psalms about trusting God at your mother's breast. So, so that there is, even at the age of breastfeeding, there is a trust that occurs where that happens. Or even the instance that I mentioned earlier of Jesus having the infants that are brought to him, he does praise their faith. And this is not just children, maybe 10-year-old children that we could say clearly do believe, but some of these children are being carried. They're likely not at an age where they can yet walk, and Jesus still is praising their faith. Of course, that makes no sense if they don't have faith. But you could look at the language that you see with the prophets, like with Jeremiah, that God sets him apart in the womb. There's the supernatural work there. But, but I think really maybe more fundamental than the question of what are the infant's intellectual capacities, which is where people usually want to go with this to say, well, psychologically, can an infant really do that? Because they can't really think that well. Well, if scripture says it, then I'm not too concerned to have to try to explain it psychologically. But when we understand that faith is not itself a human work, but it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, then we shouldn't have any problem saying that an infant can believe. Because what we're really talking about is the work of the Holy Spirit. Did the infant John the Baptist in his mother's womb really have actual knowledge of who Jesus was? Could he like think through all the theology of it? Well, no, probably not at all. But what we do know is that the Holy Spirit did work in him so that even if he can't, you know, explain or think through all the facts because his mind is very young and undeveloped, that doesn't mean that he still can't have faith because faith itself is a supernatural work of God. It's something that he does in and for sinners. You said early on that while infants can believe, what they cannot do yet is articulate that faith. Why is that important to make that distinction? Because having faith is not always identical with being able to articulate that faith. And theologians have made this distinction between a direct faith and then a faith that is reflective. 
And the faith that adults have is one that is, and not all the time, because there's an example that theologians often use here to show that that's not the case. But, you know, as adults, we can be reflective on our faith. Not only do I have faith in Christ, but I can think about what that means. I can sit back and say, okay, well, what is faith exactly? Who is Jesus exactly? I can do all of the, the theological stuff that I, you know, do as a theologian. However, an infant may not be able to know, like, know or think through all the facts and how they connect with one another, but that infant still is able to have trust. And trust is the fundamental characteristic of, of what faith is, trust in the other. And we're talking about trust in, in God, <laughs> triune God, of course, but for the infant, just think about how an infant relates to his or her parents. The infant clearly trusts his or her parents. That's just natural instinct, and, and they have to. They trust that the parents are going to do what is for their good. However, can the infant actually stop and think through, like, oh, this is my mom, this is my dad? They don't know that yet. They can't articulate it. They can't think through the facts, but that doesn't mean that the trust they have in their parents is actually any less there. So the way that theologians then have tried to give an example of, of this with, say, adults is to say that we recognize this with adults all the time. So the question is, do you only have faith if you are actively contemplating the reality of what that means? Well, not all the time. Are you thinking through the reality of your faith in Jesus at every point in your life? And when you're not actively reflecting on the reality of what that means or thinking about who Jesus is, does that mean your faith has gone away? Well, of course not, because faith is something deeper than just thinking about specific facts at specific times. So the example that theologians then point to mostly is if you're sleeping, the question is, do you, you don't have reflective faith when you're sleeping, but does that mean that you only have faith when you're awake and you don't have faith when you're asleep because you're not really conscious or you are, you know, in a dream state or whatever, or, you know, you pass out and you're unconscious for a while. Does that mean that you no longer have faith at that point? Well, of course you still have faith. And, and most of us are willing to acknowledge that. There was only one conversation I've ever had about this where somebody did say to me, no, the person in the coma does not have faith. <laughs> but that was a, a bit of an odd conversation. But I, I think other than that one odd instance, pretty much nobody is going to come to that conclusion. So if you're willing to acknowledge that, yes, of course, you can have faith while you are, say, asleep, then why would that be any less true for an infant? Is it also why when Christ commands baptism of all nations, he says baptizing and teaching? For sure. So the baptizing and the teaching certainly go together. That doesn't mean then that the teaching always has to come first, that you have to know a certain number of you know facts before you get baptized. But the two things do go hand in hand, right? So baptism is, it's not just some kind of end goal in the Christian life that you've got to learn enough or do enough to, to get to. Instead, it's just the very beginning. It's just like you have with a child who is born. The child is born, and now you focus on teaching that child. You teach them how to live in society. You teach them the basic facts about history and math and all the other things you learn in school. And you form them to be a person who understands you know, virtuous character and all of the other things that you do with the child. This is the same way that it works with the second birth and holy baptism as well. So we have this, you are born of water and the spirit. And then following that, now you've got this disciple, this newborn in Christ, this newborn infant. And now it's the role of the church and those who are called to lead and teach, whether that's in the public ministry or your parent at home, you are called to then take that baptized child and, and disciple and teach. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. 
We're discussing why we should baptize babies. We'll talk about the special care of infants that God calls for throughout Scripture next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Festus shares with Agrippa, Paul brought before Agrippa, Paul's defense before Agrippa, Paul's conversion yet again, and not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. For over 75 years, our Savior Lutheran Church has taught that among God's people, learning is drawn from the clear truth of God's eternal word, the Bible. Our focus is on the cross where our Savior Jesus Christ died so that we might live with Him here and in eternity. We invite you to join us for worship every Sunday at 930. We are located at 5000 West Tidwell in Houston, Texas, or you can watch us on our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Our Savior Lutheran Church and find us on our website at osl.cc. God's richest blessings. The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Emmanuel Lutheran, Arcadia, Indiana. Prince of Peace Lutheran, Valparaiso, Indiana. Martin Luther Chapel, Marathon, Florida. All Saints Lutheran, Charlotte, North Carolina. Zion Lutheran, Winter Garden, Florida. St. Paul Lutheran, Eden Valley, Minnesota. Mount Olive Lutheran, Duluth, Minnesota. Bethany Lutheran, Naperville, Illinois. Emmanuel Lutheran, Lewiston, Minnesota, and Pilgrim Lutheran, Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Suddenly, the outward man collapsed, unable to sustain the fervor of the inner, renewed man. I felt a loud buzzing and roaring like thunder in my head, and I had not stopped at once. I would have fainted, and then 
I was useless for two days. The machine will do no more. That is Martin Luther in the 16th century describing his bouts of anxiety and exhaustion and his trouble with mental health as well. He was very frank about it with whoever would ask. You can read more about this in our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. Martin Luther on mental health, practical advice for Christians today. It's at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We're answering the question, why we should baptize babies. Dr. Cooper, your final reason is that throughout Scripture, God shows special care for infants. So we have a, a number of instances all throughout Scripture of just the way that infants are treated. And when you're thinking about baptism, you may just ask the question, how does God treat infants? Does he treat them as if they are already those who are included within the people of God? Or does Scripture portray infants as those who are waiting to be converted at some point in their life? And I think the Baptist tends to have that latter approach, thinking that the infants, they have to come to a certain age of understanding. And once they get to that age of understanding, then they can hear the gospel and then they can make a decision for Christ. That simply is not the way scripture portrays it at all. And the scripture says a lot about parenting. It says a lot about how you raise your children, whether you're looking at things like Proverbs or you know the instructions that Paul gives, say in Ephesians. In none of those instances do we ever see anyone saying, try to make sure that your child converts later in life. No, it's you raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. The assumption underneath that is that that's just part of how you teach them. That's part of their life, and it's part of their life from the beginning. Scripture doesn't give the kinds of instructions that one would expect it to give had the New Testament authors really believed that the infants were in a state where it was ultimately the hope of the parents that they would convert someday. That's just not how it treats infants. But we have a number of instances we can look at more specifically about infants. So here are probably the three most significant ones. The first of these is circumcision and the relationship between the infant and their acceptance into the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So it was through circumcision on the eighth day after birth that the male child was now considered part of the covenant people of the nation of Israel. The first circumcision you have with Abraham was he was older, but then it was the promise of circumcision. The covenant of circumcision was to be given to his children and in perpetuity that was then given to children. So in the Old Testament, if you are, you know, if you're a Jew, you understand that, okay, our infants are part of the covenant. They're part of the community. They're part of the people of God too. We circumcise them right away, and then they are raised in, in the faith. And so I think what you have for the Baptist is this challenge that is, well, where do you see that there is some radical discontinuity between the way that God viewed infants in the old covenants versus the new covenant? In fact, it seems to be completely opposite of, of the way that scripture generally contrasts the covenants, because the way that we switch from old to new Testament or old to new covenant, many things happen in terms of the greatness of the new covenant over the old covenant. And so we see these contrasts all throughout the New Testament, especially something like Hebrews, where we have the old covenant promise was not as good as the new covenant one. And one of the primary ways that's the case is in terms of who is included in the covenant. So in the old covenant, you have, it's mostly, you know, ethnic Israel. 
though you do have, you know, occasionally you have Gentile converts, but for the most part, it's ethnic Israel. Well, who receives circumcision? Only men, right? It's the male infants that receive circumcision. Well, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, there is this move toward universality, right? It's not the, the gospel is now for the Jew and the Greek. And the, you know, the gift of holy baptism is for you know, men and women. So why would we think then that all of a sudden there's this exclusion that, oh, hey, well, circumcision was for infants, but now with the New Testament, all of a sudden we go the reverse and say, no more, infants can't receive baptism now. And then that's just not the way that the New Testament relates to the old at all. It never works that way. And we see no evidence at all in the New Testament that that, that would be the case. So we see that's the first instance. Uh, the second would be what I already mentioned with Jesus and, and simply the way that he treats infants in that particular instance of the infants being brought to him. And then he tells them of such is the kingdom of God. And the third of those is just the way that the language of household is used in the New Testament. So we have a number of examples of baptisms in the New Testament of people who have families. And you know the head of the family said the man converts. And we have this in the book of Acts, and we also have one example in 1 Corinthians. Now, if you look at every single one of those instances where someone is converted and baptized who has a household, meaning children, probably not just children, it may have also included a wife and as well as possibly servants that would have been in the house. But we're told every single time that the household is also baptized. So we see this continual pattern that the head of the house is baptized and then everyone else in the household is baptized as well. And certainly that includes children. Now, you may try to pick that apart and say, but it doesn't technically stay the ages of the children. So maybe they weren't infants and maybe they all made a decision for Jesus too. But the text clearly doesn't say that. And I think you're missing the general point, which is that there is a general principle there that we see outlined that is when the father is baptized, he brings his kids to be baptized with him. How would you summarize all this in about a minute? Really, the most central question is, who is it that is in need of baptism? Who is it that is in need of Jesus? And if it is indeed the case, as you know, St. Paul says, St. Romans 6, that baptism unites us to Jesus, that it, it unites us with his death and gives us the benefits of his death and, and his resurrection as well, then we simply have to ask, well, who is it that needs the benefits of Christ? Who needs Jesus? Who needs the many blessings that he gives to be united to his death, his resurrection, to receive his forgiveness and his righteousness and to be adopted into the family of God? And the answer to that is really, I think, pretty clear, which is everyone. <laughs> we, we all need that. We all desperately need that. So if that's the case, if the promise of the gospel is both a universal need and there's a universal desire on God's part to deliver his precious gifts, then absolutely we should give those gifts to everybody we can. And that means we certainly should deliver it to our children as a place where they receive the gifts of Christ, where they are brought into the family of God. And that then serves as the beginning of the life of faith of our, of our child, that God has given us this, given them particularly this great promise that they will be able to continually draw strength from for the rest of their lives. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Just and Sinner, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. He's author of several books, including his latest, In Defense of the True, the Good, and the Beautiful. He's creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Reasons Why Babies Should Be Baptized. You'll find a link to this video and to Just and Sinner on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Dr. Cooper, thank you. Thank you. 
Folks, here's a way for you to help us proclaim the faith once delivered to all the saints. Join the Issues Etc. Reformation Club. It's a group of faithful listeners who pledge to support this worldwide outreach monthly or annually. Membership benefits include books, shirts, broadcast transcripts, and advertising for your confessional Lutheran church. Find out how to become an Issues Etc. Confessor, Apologist, Reformer, or Patron on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Reformation Club. We'll be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, next. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's small catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.